Hello and welcome to a, another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host, joined by my blue collar badass, Matt. How's it going, my friend? It's going good, man. These are crazy ass times we live in. Um, <laughs> an ironic twist that I learned today in this whole Russia Ukraine mess. Um, Ukraine is actually a friggin' huge steel exporter, <laughs> along with Russia. Um, Ukraine is like, 13th largest in the world, uh, but they're fifth largest exporter of iron ore. So our bullshit supply chain and lead times for structural steel and, and bar joists and things was already way too long. I was told this morning, you better buckle up because it's going to get even farther stretched out. So it's, it continues to amaze me. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, I mean, grains, you know, it's a huge exporter for Ukraine as well, you know, just food in general. And then uh, cool thing, well, kind of. Um, so as with ships, you can do the same with planes, like the plane tracker and flight tracker. So you can see a map of like plane traffic. And uh, I saw one that like the whole country of Ukraine had ev like every single plane just went around it um and the border extension so all all public data i mean all that needs to be tracked and stuff so not for military planes but all commercial flights were around it so um <laughs> it does not bode well for any of that you know and steel production and then sanctions you know you're not going to get anything out of russia either um so meaning if you hear this and you have the capital or know a guy uh, start building some steel plants. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be good business for, for uh, a long time to come. But uh, outside of talking about steel and supply chain, all that good stuff, we are bringing you awesome guests. And this week uh, I'm going to have Brent Slonikowski on who has 13 plus years of reality capture and surveying knowledge, and he's bringing it all to you guys in the AEC industry, which is why we're here at the end of the day. And currently, he's the Director of Business Development at Virtual Technology Simplified, which is paving the paths to new businesses and services in the AEC industry, meaning he gets to play with a bunch of cool toys um, in AC telecom insurance, which I'm curious on those applications. Uh, but Prior to BTS, Brent spent five years at Faro. So if you haven't heard of Faro, probably under a rock or don't do anything with scanning. Um, but he was a senior account manager there for the AC verticals, um, adopting and helping clients to use scanners on their projects and doing 3D reality capture uh, manufacturing technology into the organization. So beyond Faro, Brent spent several years working in land development, surveying and reality capture for a multitude of industries, meaning he's not just selling it, he did it. So that, Brent, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Dylan, Matt. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for that very vivid introduction. Um, you know, I've, I've, I, it's, it's kind of funny. I've been on both sides. I went from, you know, doing the services and all that fun stuff to what they call the dark side and sales and then kind of back into services, but kind of sales. So I'm still kind of on the dark side, um, but loving every, every minute of, of it here over at uh, VTS. Um, for those who are on the, the podcast here and haven't heard of us, we are a small startup uh, 3D reality capture and software company up in Brighton, Michigan, near Detroit. Uh, we've been around for a couple of years now, specializing in capture for uh, AEC, uh, major projects, uh, telecom, and insurance, which Dylan, you said, uh, wasn't of interest to you. It's a very interesting industry, very challenging industry to do capture in. Um, maybe one of these days we'll, we'll take a deeper dive into it, but um, I think uh, we'll, we'll stay astray from, from the insurance talks right now and uh, kind of focus in on uh, you know, what's, what's happening in our industry. Um, it's, it's, you know, interesting points you guys brought up with the Ukrainian crisis, obviously such a, a sad scenario to um, see, especially in today's day and age. So definitely thinking of those folks over there and uh, hoping we're doing everything we can. But I think it's interesting to see how, you know, how much of a role a country like that plays in, in you know, the impact of construction. We already have all these significant impacts and to, uh, you know, delays and, and, you know, 
material and um, heck, I'm sure most of us have ordered furniture in the last year or so. Uh, wait on bedroom sets, you know, six months. They're they're still sitting out in in on some cargo ship uh, off the coast of of the California, or maybe it made its way down here to Florida where I'm at. But um, certainly, we're we're not out of it yet. I think we're going to see some very interesting things happen with the the repercussions of this. Uh, uh, I don't want to say war yet, but you know this this crisis that's going on, and um, hopefully we can we can see some some way out of it. Maybe we'll see some some changes to the American economy with you know our steel producers and our our companies that are you know putting the materials out there. So definitely interested to see how that that makes an impact, especially you know for you guys who are doing the the day to day construction and have those direct impacts. Yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, it, it's been a challenging last couple of years to say the least. And we just seem to keep adding more shit on top of the pile. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, human rights and all that aside, that that's a different, different subject of all this, but the, the economic side of it and the, the reality of the industry has just been brutal, you know, and, and labor has also obviously been a huge one which is a, a point that I wanted to kind of bring up today. And we, we might as well just jump in and start there because, you know, people tend to have a probably unhealthy fear of technology in general, especially the old timers in construction, right? We've, we've talked about this before in the show as an industry, we are piss poor in adopting new technology because it, a, the average age of the construction worker in the trades is like 52 now or something insane. Um, and, and B, I think people are, are afraid that, you know, the robots are coming to take our jobs type thing. So why don't you touch on a little bit on, on how you see technology playing the role with the labor force as a, as an asset to it and not, not necessarily as, as a, you know, an enemy coming to take your job. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the interesting things with the, the labor force that I've, I think I've talked about in the past is, um, you know, there's always been, and, and myself included, you know, back in, you know, 2010 and, and earlier days than that when I was in high school, the push to put, push students towards college and not kind of give them this open arms of, well, you could go to college, you could uh, do some sort of entrepreneurial thing, or you could go towards the trades. And it's always been a push towards um, collegiate programs. And it's still that way, I think, somewhat today, but it's gotten better with trying to promote the trades. And I've, I've met several um, different guys and gals in, in different trade organizations, and they've done a really good job of, of trying to um, expand that outreach, especially in, in technology, right? And I think that's gotten a lot of attention with um, some of the younger generation to, you know, kind of gravitate towards that area. Um, you know, a lot of times I think there's this push from you know, grandparents or parents, or maybe there's some, um, you know, sporting reasons that they want to go to, you know, a certain college where you can't do that in trade school necessarily. But I think we're seeing um, much better progress towards that, which I think will help drive this labor issue we see. Um, you know, COVID and everything that's gone on has really drastically blown that up, right? Um, it's, it's, and then the economy and the way it's changing with, uh, the increase in wages for, for minimum wage and um, just the way that, you know, the pay structures work. So I don't think we're completely out of it. I think we still have those challenges um, in front of us to face, but I think one of the things that our industry, especially construction, can continue to do is push um, and educate. I'll, I'll take the word push out of it because it sounds bad, but educate and encourage um, students to go towards the trades. You know, my wife and I have, have, you know, talked with our kids about it. They're still rather young, but, um, Hey, you know what, follow your passion. Um, if you want to go to trade school, Hey, I'm all for it. Cause you know, for me as a parent and having to pay for you to go to school, many of those programs are paid for. So that's even better. But if that's what you enjoy doing and you gravitate towards, then I'm all for it. I'll support you either way. But I think that's, you know, that's certainly one way. It's not the whole answer to, to addressing that. But um, I think we'll, you know, we'll start to see the benefits of that as we continue going forward. Um, another thing is with like uh, vendors and different organizations. You know, I saw when I was working at Faro 
and uh, I was working with some of the universities in, in Indiana, they had a lot of sponsorship from companies around there, especially Northwest Indiana, where you're around the steel belt. And one of the things I always promoted was, you know, if you can have those companies um, who are, are helping fund your programs or they're donating, um, you know, Ivy Tech had this awesome technology lab there that many of the companies around there supported. If you can have more support like that and then get students uh, to come over to that, to that, you know, trade school or that program um, and sort of guarantee them a place in the workforce, you have an even better shot at, at bringing them into industry. So we definitely want to see more things like that, um, more companies promoting uh, internships. That's, you know, you know, kind of, you know, talking about my story and, and how I got here. Um, uh, you know, my dad encouraged me to kind of get into the civil engineering world. And uh, in 2008, I started working for a small land surveying company. And I did that for a few years until the housing market crashed. Um, I was working at Bass Pro at the time. So I kind of used that to help, uh, you know, that gap I had, it was also fun to work there. I got plenty of discounts on cool stuff. And then um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the housing market forced me to sort of look at somewhere else to go. And I ended up landing myself an internship with a, a local company that did laser scanning as a specialty. I had never heard of it before that. This was back around 2010. Um, and I started learning and doing it and I just really gravitated towards it. And then all through college, I worked there. I ended up graduating, worked there full time, um, worked in a multitude of industries and it really just like, I loved it. Um, there was a year I actually moved away from it and kind of went towards my you know, normal civil engineering type work that I had a degree in and was doing hydraulics, which was really cool and interesting. But I found myself talking about laser scanning all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I ended up going back to that company and, uh, you know, fast forward through time, worked at Farrow for five years, um, built a lot of great relationships um, in the Chicagoland region and uh, worked with a number of, of large GCs that, you know, I still hold very close to me today. And, um, and then wound up over here at VTS um, through my, uh, my, you know, knowing our CEO, John Schwalabog, um, he and I had worked together at Farrell in the past and uh, uh, connected really well and have a lot of respect for John and, and ended up coming here today. And, uh, you know, we're working on some really cool stuff. So really excited to, to see where things go. So that's kind of my outlook on, you know, where I think the workforce is going and some of the challenges and what we could do to, to address those as an organ, as a industry. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir on getting, getting kids more interested in the trades. You know, that's, that's the whole blue collar badass thing. We're, we're slowly, but surely, you know, making this more of a movement. Um, but I think that's the key and, and whether it's attracting kids with, with cool technology or better paying jobs or, or whatever we as an industry all have to chip in a hell of a lot more than, than we have in the past. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you brought up robots and, and sort of the fear of that taking on the job. Um, I had the fortunate um, uh, opportunity to spend a lot of time with spot um, over the years with one of my former colleagues, Kip Ivy. And that was often a question that, that came up is how, how does it change the workforce? How does it impact the workforce by introducing these um, pieces of technology that are thought to replace somebody's job, but you actually have to look at it from the point of view that it's actually allowing you to be more productive, right? So if you take spot, for example, um, you know, there is some routine planning that has to be done with spot, but once that's done, um, just like with drones, um, there's planning involved, they can then go perform their tasks. Now, drones have to, you know, most of the time have eyes on it the whole time. Um, Spot technically does not. Um, you know, there are, for those who have seen it, there are still some limitations to it. But for the most part, it can perform those tasks that are um, ongoing, that are redundant, that not are necessarily waste of time. But if I'm a project engineer, let's say on a construction project, if I can have 
an automated system performing the task that would take me a couple hours or all day to do, but now I can have it do it and me focus on something else. Maybe that helps the project push ahead. Um, maybe it allows me to work on the data from the day yesterday, depending on what the deliverable is. So my take on it is try to embrace it and find a way to, to ingrain it into your process where it benefits, um, you know, it's usually going to be a person or a team, a small team. Um, it's, you know, not going to do the task of, of 10 individuals, but, um, you know, find a way to ingrain it. Don't think of it as, you know, I have to go hire someone to, to do this now. Well, no, spot, you're basically hiring someone by buying spots, $75,000, <laughs> which is, you know, the salary of someone. But guess what? You only pay that for the first year. If you're hiring someone, you're paying that year after year after year, you know, hire someone who can take care of spot and all the other things that relate to reality capture, capture in general, but allow them to be more nimble. And um, by using something like that, allows them to be more productive with their day-to-day -day task. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> spot, you know, Dylan and I have talked about it. For, for those that, that haven't been listening, Spot is like a, it's like a robotic dog. I think it's by the Boston Dynamics folks. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, yep. Um, it's pretty cool to see. I mean, in, in full candor, I've only watched YouTube videos and I've seen it, you know, do tricks and get kicked and not fall over and, and fun stuff like that. But um, just to briefly touch on that, what are, what were you seeing GCs or construction firms actually use this thing for? A lot of the focus was, was on, um, you know, repetitive capture, right? As a vendor, as working for a vendor, you, you want to push your clients to try and scan as, as much as you can scan everything, right? Um, there, there's value in, in the data, right? Um, so a lot of progress scanning, um, certain projects it's implemented on, um, certain projects it's, it's part of like the main scope of the project. Um, other projects it's not even thought of. We might bring a scanner in every once in a while. And many times it's, well, we'll bring it in when we have an issue, right? Which is normally too late to make any decisive action in a situation like that. You can still obviously grab um, valuable data from analyzing what the situation is, but the benefit is always going to be in implementing that um, ahead of time, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so <laughs> I'm not, I'm really not trying to do a commercial for spot, but it interests the hell out of me. Um, does the dog itself, like when you buy the base dog model, does it come equipped with whatever you need to do scanning or that's, that's all a la carte, whatever you it's can all, mount to it's, it. It's all a la carte. Um, obviously nearly every scanning vendor has a, a solution for it now. So you have Leica with um, the BLK, you have uh, the RTC, Faro with the Focus, Trimble with the total stations and the scanner. Um, so it's going to come down, you know, if you're new to scanning, but this is something you want to look at getting, um, you know, you definitely want to, uh, do your, your, you know, best testing amongst, you know, the main vendors that are out there and find the system that works best for you. Um, not just focused on for it for spot because spot isn't going to be used all the time, right? Spots good for those repetitive applications, those dangerous situations. Um, there's also integration of just 360 image capture, right? Um, so not all the time do you need laser scanning. Sometimes it's just simplistic capture to, to get images of stuff that's going behind a wall. Um, while, you know, laser scanning will always deliver more value, um, you have to figure out what, what need or challenge you're trying to address. So, um, so typically, you know, you'll take the price of the scanner, you'll take the price of spot. There's usually some integration components to it. Um, every vendor differs slightly. And then, um, you know, the Boston Dynamics team will, will put that together and work with the vendor to get it packaged and then get you trained and, and you're, you're on your way. Um, it's, 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 uh, I've driven it. I've, you know, watched it. I've seen it flip over. Uh, you know, I've seen it do everything it's supposed to. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to see in our industry. You know, we, we continue to see technology um, 
exponentially grow in capabilities with with drones you know recent couple of years where they can basically you know fly themselves we we did a video a couple of years ago with uh, uh the skydio which has the tracking capabilities with you just run it on a phone and you tell it what angle you want it to fly at and capture you and and the thing will dodge uh dip duck dive dodge from you know dodgeball right um around anything that's that's in the vicinity of that um and uh you know it's, it's just amazing to see i mean even with scanners you know 12 13 years ago when i first got in the industry they were very advanced at the time now you bring forward to today you can basically do the entire project and export your data set out before you even leave the site um which is fantastic right it just means quicker um quicker decisions quicker decision making uh, for service providers like us it means quicker validation before we leave a project that um, the client um, will be satisfied with the data and we have everything we need with somebody that's maybe skeptical on scanning in particular what we can say on this for their projects so whether that's you know laser or photogrammetry whatever it might be and doing like the updates you know that that spot would do where it's going to walk the site give you you know ongoing as builds progress pictures all that stuff you know it's like the primary application i've seen for spot where it'll you know walk on the concourse or the floor and, and a proven uh or mapped out path to do that but what's what are the like maybe top three big benefits of uh, consistently scanning on projects? Depending on, so there's a lot of software out there um, to track progress, right? Um, whether it be from scanners, drones, 360 images, right? So I think one of the biggest benefits in construction is definitely the part of uh, progress, right? And because you get such detailed information from the the capture the um uh there's so many different valuable things that you can grab from that data set right um it's not just focusing on pictures where you only get you know certain kinds of, of data um where if i scanned i might have you know something else that i could have uh analyzed you know uh later on um so it, it caps it's just you're getting so much data, so much richness and so much value from that, that you can utilize later on, you know, maybe you're only focusing on structural steel issues, but maybe it's not structural steel that's causing a problem. Maybe it's something in your floor. Maybe there's something in your floor that you don't catch. So that's one of the benefits that um, a lot of the GCs like is just how much, uh, much context you get out of that data. Um, number two is, is, you know, speed, right? When we think about how scanners work, they take, couple minutes, some of them can scan in under a minute. I get images and LIDAR data from that, um, where, you know, if I go around with a camera, I can do that pretty quickly, but I'm only getting images, right? Now I can convert that image to a point cloud using photogrammetry, but then I lose my, my accuracy, right? So it, there's a couple of things I always uh, point to when um, you're trying to decide what's the best technology to use, right? So start at the deliverable. A lot of people um, especially who are novice to the industry who may, who may be on the sales side will focus on, you know, how fast it captures, what, um, what accuracy do you need? Um, things like that. Right. And, uh, I always focus on the deliverable. You start with the deliverable and work backwards. And from that, um, depending on what it is, then you can decide, do I need, you know, a, a high end 3d terrestrial scanner? Can I use mobile? right? I need to be able to capture this in a quick instance, but I don't need quite the accuracy. Um, and that's kind of how I've always worked on that. So I'm going to, I'm going to push back on you just a little bit. Um, because while I'm younger than a lot of people in my industry, uh, I've been around long enough to, to get a little stodgy and, and, <laughs> and ornery also, is there a point where it's just too much data, right? Like when we were, where the average builder, let's say, like, here's my example. We, we have a guy, we call him our drone guy. You actually know him pretty well. Mm -hmm. We hire him once in a while to come in, and fly. And it's, it's typically, we use it for marketing more than, yeah. than monitoring. Um, and I mean, he comes back and he does a great job, 
but he he downloads just these like impossibly huge amounts of of data and it's all just picture and, and videos and you know there's probably a lot more we could do with it than we do but generally speaking it sits in a vault and you know from time to time we grab out of it when we have a cool idea for a new a new postcard <laughs> a new flyer but like is there a point where it's just too much um i mean yeah the, the data is is huge right um there, there's no way to really say it's it's small right lidar data is huge no matter what you're looking at um so you know one of the things that's important as a company that might be adopting it that generally gets underlooked is the processing side of the business right um what computer you're going to use how are you going to store it do you have enough storage how many projects are you going to do a year what's the average size of a project that was always the hardest question to answer um as a salesperson because it varies greatly depending on what scanner settings you use I would not let that scare me though, right? Um, you're gonna have, you're always gonna probably capture more than you need. Um, there are ways to, to limit that and there are processes and workflows that you can establish within your organization to help diminish the storage impact um, of, of you know, your computers, right? That tends to be one of the more expensive ends of laser scanning besides uh, the, the calibrations and buying batteries and stuff like that, right? Like those are, you know, I think of those now as pennies on the dollar. But um, I think, you know, I, I would not let that scare you away from it, right? Um, you know, 10 years ago, it was like this little niche practice that was mainly driven by um, service companies or land surveying companies. And those companies are still around today. Um, but now it's evolved into this, um, you know, it's almost broken out by trade, right? You have service groups like us who specialize agnostically. So we specialize in all different kinds of capture tools, BLKs, Ferro scanners, Trimble scanners, Lycos, doesn't matter, um, and drones. And the benefit to that um, from the services side is because we're agnostic, if you have a challenge to address, but you don't have the tool to do it or the resource, that's where you benefit from someone like us. But as a um, construction company, it's much more difficult to establish because of budgets and things like that, right? The most successful groups I've seen that, that, set, that are set up well tend to have a large VDC department with multiple people. You have a VDC manager or a tech manager, and then you have project engineers that work below that. And they each can kind of run those systems. Um, and they may trade off going to jobs. Um, and some of them can fly drones and some cannot, but most of the companies that I've worked with are, um, you know, contractors who have just one or two people that run, you know, their whole scanning division for the entire company. And for some people it works and for others they're, they're overwhelmed. Right. But the best advice I could give is if you're going to invest in the scanning technology or you as an organization like an architecture firm, right? That they tend to, to stray away from investing the technology because of the cost. However, they reap some of the biggest benefits from it when it comes to design off of a true as-built. Um, so I always tend to say, focus on how you're gonna store that data and work with it um, and, and try to get a good understanding of that so that whether you're doing it yourself or you're working with a service provider, you know, we, can provide you the, the data in the best manner, whether that be through you know, your own FTP site, um, these new cloud-based online portals that everybody's using. Um, and, and, and that's kind of the, just the best way to attack it right now. Um, but don't be overwhelmed, right? It's no matter that you buy the cheapest drone or the, the most expensive LiDAR scanner, like you're gonna get a lot of data from it. Understand how you can use that data um, in a valuable way versus going, oh my gosh, this is way too much to deal with. The first time we hired, uh, our buddy to go fly a job a few years ago, he sent me the link and I downloaded it all to my personal Dropbox and Dropbox actually called me and said, what in the hell are you trying to put on here? It's way too much. So we, we've since upgraded our, our capacity, but I get what you're saying. I, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit a lot of, of stuff that we're just barely scratching the surface right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, even if you're not using cloud today, you know, even investing in servers, you know, I worked for a company, we had a hundred thousand dollar dedicated server just for 
scanning and we had scan sets dating back 15 years that we could still pull up, right? Um, I have worked with some of the biggest general contractors in the country and their solution for storage was going to Walmart and buying a 10, 8, 10 terabyte external hard drive. And once the project's done, it moves there and it's stored there and it might get backed up somewhere. So you got to do what works best for you. Definitely, if, if you have an IT guy you know, at your company, talk with him about the best way to, to structure it. Um, if you don't, you probably should call an IT guy and talk to him about how you should structure it. Um, but also work with your vendors as well. Um, some of them have their own platforms for, for data storage. Um, you just got to do what works best for you. There's no simple answer to it. Yeah, so the best uses of scanning that I've seen are one in facilities that do a ton of uh, movement, right? So hospitals, uh, if you move a ton of office space around, uh, manufacturing can do pretty well with this <clears throat> to a point, right? But those are the, the ones that have the biggest benefit and then multi-stories, mainly for figuring out where in the steel you can drill a hole to get in like floor boxes or pull boxes or getting through the rebar within the steel so you don't have to bring in x-ray later to figure out where all the, the joists are. So those are the best applications I've seen for scanning, uh, obviously. And then you come back in for as-builds, existing conditions, for buildings that are really old and the floors level and all those kinds of good things. Those have been some of the best applications I've seen for scanning on a you know project by project basis. And then, you know, like Brent said, you really need somebody that knows what the hell they're doing when it comes to dealing with point clouds. It's gotten I will say easier to deal with than in years past, but again, they're, they're still a, a big thing, you know, an average point cloud, I say average, but you know, they're 50, hundred, 200 gigs for a, a single point cloud file could be bigger depending on what you're doing. Uh, and then to manage, manipulate, deal with that data is uh, extremely process intensive. And then to do the right things with it and tell the difference between a, make sure that's an actual wall, <laughs> line everything up or a pipe, whatever. And again, there's, it's gotten better in uh, years hence, you know, versus like a decade ago when I was doing a lot more with point clouds at that time. So there's for sure applications for it, you know, and then saving the time and going to site and getting measurements. And, you know, if you're an architect or design team, you know, like this beats getting out the old uh, tape measure and, and pencil and uh, dimensioning rooms and all that kind of stuff for existing Zen as builds. Oh yeah. But to, to not spend the entire day on uh, scanning. So one of the other things that we had talked about a little bit before, so we'll cover this and then I'd like to get into prefab, is really in some of the other robotic pieces that have come forward. So uh, like Dusty is going to be one of them, but layout, layout robots, uh, not to just single Dusty out, but layout robots. What, what are you seeing in that uh, realm and how can they help? So it's an interesting space, right? Um, you've seen quite a few startups in the last few years um, enter the realm, Dusty being one of them, and um, just trying to, to change the way of old traditional layout, right? Um, and it's not that it's bad. I mean, if you look at the way that total stations have um, grown over the years, I mean, they've, they've gotten to a point where, you know, they can pretty much run themselves other than pressing a couple of buttons. And I've, I've had, you know, several years of, of experience working with them. Um, I think they're going to be around for a long time, right? Um, we'll start to see them more integrated with systems like Dusty, like Spot, um, and, and whatever else may lay out there. Um, there's some other things that have come to light um, that I spent a, a great deal of time with at Faro, um, and it's, it's laser projection technology. And it's actually not um, it's relatively new to construction, but it's not. There's a couple of companies out there today that um, have adopted technology um, uh, using, you know, very similar lasers and things like that, um, that are kind of changing the way you can lay out. So traditionally, you know, total stations are, are single point layout. We can use direct reflex methods to measure. We can use a green, Trimble's got a green laser pointer that is fairly accurate for layout. The problem with it is it's single point, right? So whether I'm a 
a traditional land surveyor where maybe this doesn't apply to them so much, but when we start talking about mechanical contractors who are, you know, putting hangers up, joists, whatever is going up in the ceiling or the floor, the traditional way to do that is, is you lay out the points on the floor and then you project those up, you know, 90 degrees and then it gets marked up in the ceiling. So it's, it's a little bit of a process. Um, you know, something like Dusty would be the same way, right? We would have to lay out um, what it can't, float upside down at least yet i don't think <laughs> on the ceiling and, and lay out maybe that's the future maybe there's a drone that's gonna you know be able to spray a pinpoint I, i'm sure it's already being thought of but today you know there's limitations to that right um we, we have gravitational pull so we have to limit ourselves there but um i spent a great deal of time with laser projection technology and many people don't really know about it because it, it hasn't really played a role in the construction industry but it's actually played a role in a lot of what, what we utilize today. Every airplane you fly on, uh, for the most part, has some sort of, of tie back to that technology. It dates back about two, three decades. Um, for Faro, it was an acquisition uh, about five or six years ago. But essentially, it's this, this box that you mount up on a tripod or hang from a ceiling. And it has a, a, an area that it takes a CAD file and projects that template um, very accurately, um, as, as far down as a quarter millimeter. So when we talk about aerospace and, and manufacturing of, of uh, large um, land moving type equipment and things like that, it's perfect for that, right? Um, and it's really shown um, extreme value in those industries to speed up um, production and layout and things like that. Um, if you've watched how the industry and con how construction is changing, um, especially with the concept of prefabrication, modular construction, that's where I spent some time. Those are the areas where um, I see a lot of excitement and a lot of growth. Um, you know, one of the big issues, especially up in Canada and other parts around our country is housing shortage, right? Um, I moved down to Florida in October and the area I live in is, is it's moderately expensive, but when you look at the availability of housing, um, and the amount of people we have down here, especially affordable housing, it's it's like non-existent. It's it's insanely priced. So what they've done up in like Canada is there's a couple of large construction companies that have implemented this modular construction process, and it's basically taking something like a Connex box and making it into a livable structure. Right now, there are companies that do exactly that, where they just convert the Connex box into this magnificent nice looking place that probably has nicer materials than my house does here. But um, there's also companies that are building these structures um, to today's codes, right? Um, so putting these in places in California where you have earthquakes down here in, in Florida, where we experience, you know, wind events um, and all over the country. Um, and one of the things that has really, if you look at how many hotels are being built right now, it's crazy how many of these things I see going up. And they've probably been one of the biggest benefiters from um, modular construction. And the reason being, if you, think, if you think about how long it takes to build a hotel, you know, just a standard, maybe 100, 200 room hotel, you're talking 12, 18 months. You guys would probably know better than me, but that's just a rough guesstimate. What's the, what's the best thing that you can do for the client there, right? The best thing is to finish on time or ahead of time because it means that they can start renting out that facility sooner, which means they're making money, right? Well, by implementing modular construction where we take that laser projection technology and other types of technology in building that, we speed that process up by months. Sometimes it's six months. Um, and you're basically removing any obstacles, whether people being sick, um, different environmental factors, you're removing those and streamlining the process. So while laser projection is only one part of that, the overall process of modular construction and or prefabrication has an extremely large impact in, in um, that business. But even with um, mechanical contractors, right? Um, if you look at a lot of them today, they're all prefabbing. It might be electrical panels, um, racks, um, MEP piping structures, all of those we've applied that laser projection technology to, um, to help, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 50% throughput um, that you're increasing. But I, it, it's a fascinating industry. Um, and, and I guess what I'm getting back to is if you take that 
manufacturing technology and push it into construction, now we can implement the same processes on the prefabrication side, but then let's take it a step further. How does that actually help with the on-site production side? So if I'm able to set up in an area where I would put a total station and I would do single point layout for hangers, joists, whatever it is, well, now I can take a 50 foot area and I could project 20 of those at a time. So that means I'm not double tasking by marking on the floor and then going back and lasering it up or having two guys or two gals doing the layout. It speeds up that production. Um, same thing with, with the dusty system, right? I mean, uh, really you just gotta have a good foundation for control. Make sure you have an open area so that it has a line of sight to its instrument. And then you just, you hit play. You make sure it's printing the thing out um, the way it's supposed to. Um, uh, now, I would be curious if you guys have seen it, what were your thoughts on the technology that drives that system? On the Dusty itself? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's kind of a cool story. And I, I actually met with those guys recently. Um, but that robot was actually originally developed and designed to be like a industrial Roomba. It was, it was developed to be a vacuum cleaner to clean up job sites. And they realized very quickly that that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And they converted it into what it is now. I mean, it's, it's pretty damn cool. And we, we've Dylan and I have chatted about it a bit on the show before. Um, you know, you basically feed it, you feed it CAD drawings or, or some sort of modeling of your, of your plans. And it drives around. It's a little, you know, it's an ugly little garbage can looking thing and it it, it drives around and it, it inkjets literally everything you could want onto the floor um it's really cool we're, we're looking at implementing it in a, a project we have upcoming but what i will say is it also opened up some pretty glaring holes in our design team and not, not necessarily holes in a, in a sense that they're doing anything wrong but you know it's it's the garbage in garbage out philosophy and if you're drawings and I, I'm the worst person to ask about CAD or any of that sort of thing. But, you know, if, if your drawings aren't laid out pretty damn perfect, you know, they, the, the, the dusty guys want to see framing lines. So what we found real quick was that our architect had, had drawn everything to finish lines. So he included the drywall on both sides of every wall. And, you know, in the field, my carpenters, they don't give a shit. They know what they're looking at. They slam them together, but for the robot to understand, it takes some manipulation. So that's, that's fairly common um, with laser projection too, right? Because yeah. the way, you know, with the dusty system, it's reading exactly what's in CAD, right? It's got to know what layer to, to lay out, what lines to lay out. With laser projectors, it's all based on surface, right? And where your alignment points are. So uh, a good example is with, with wall panel construction, um, as you're layering that with the laser and putting in your studs and then your sheetrock or your drywall, and then maybe there's another layer, when you actually create the CAD for that, for the system to read it, you, the user, have to understand that there's a change in, in depth of that material. Because what will end up happening is, well, if you, if you put a flat drawing in there, right, like we always see in 2D, but I'm using a four inch stud or a six inch tall stud, it doesn't know that. So if I was to lay that out, I would probably end up building it incorrectly because the way the laser works is when you put that item up against the, the laser, it has to hit the top of that surface. And as you move it further away or closer, it'll change where that line lays out. So I think they kind of share a similar obstacle when it comes to you have to start to think differently, right? You're used to how ah, the carpenters can figure it out. That's not a really big deal. Well, now we're implementing a technology piece that it is important. It is critical. So how does that impact um, the way that we process our, our, uh, our designs and, and our layouts? And I kind of got to kind of rethink a little bit with it. Yeah, the, the big thing for me, too, as this technology gets implemented is, you know, having sat and still am to a point on the design side of the table is you know like you're saying like now this gets thrown back to the design team to like hey fix it well it doesn't need to be quote fixed right it's now i need a different deliverable to use this thing 
to implement, right? Their drawings were still technically correct in traditional process. And then it's making sure that, okay, if we're going to use this, these are where our lines need to be. Now somebody has to do that and, you know, they need to get paid for it, ultimately, you know, which isn't what anybody wants to hear, but that's like the, the story of it. You can't, and this is like, just on the, from the design perspective, uh, you know, most people react like that and it's not in malice or anything. And I'm not saying you are mad, but like, you know, it's, we got a hole in the system. Well, you know, damn architect didn't do this or engineer didn't lace shit out right or whatever. And it's like, well, you didn't tell them that they you were using it this way and now it's a problem. So a lot of this, again, it comes down to clear communication, but it also comes to like, you need to know what's in your contracts. And that's another hill I will die on for a long time to come is, you know, most of you don't know what's in your contracts. You don't know what you're signing up for from a design team or from what you, if you're an owner, what you're getting from your GC other than a building that works and hopefully nothing breaks, right? Like there's a lot of that stuff in those contracts that you need to be aware of and what your ultimate deliverables are uh, just to kind of put some fine tooth on, on a lot of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and not to, I'm not by any means shitting all over my architect for that. I mean, in all fairness, we've been working on this project for going on two years. I just brought this layout robot into the mix like 24 hours ago. So um, I shit all over him on other things that he deserved, but this one was not, uh, not something he should have caught. So, it, you know, moving forward though, it's, it's kind of a cool discussion now to have in my head, like, like you were saying, Dylan, like, all right, architect, now this is how we have to have to have this produced, have to have this output. Yeah. You don't want it to be like this, you know, mind boggling game changing approach to how they, they do their work. Right. Um, I saw the same with when I started getting into prefab and modular construction um, and the way that architects do the designs, it, it's, they got to think a little bit differently. Um, but, you know, a lot of it's very simple changes. Um, it's just a conversation or two, a little bit of testing and hand holding, And, you know, as long as you have a good relationship with, with your architect and your other contractors you work with, then everything should go well. But if you're going to go the other route and yell at the guy, like, Hey, fix this. I, I need it done this way. Um, best of luck. He's probably going to throw a 89 degree angle in there on one of your walls that you didn't catch and <laughs> throw things off a little bit. <laughs> I, I have seen pushback on the, the modular side with, with a lot of architects and I had the, the opportunity um, about, a, I don't know, five, 10 years ago to, to work with champion homes. And at the time they were doing exactly what you were mentioning earlier. They were, they were building hotels out of giant adult size Lego kits. Right. And they build these things off site, and it was incredible. I mean, they would build these, they're the size of a shipping container, roughly as, as wide as they can put on a semi and as long as they can put on it, but they would go as far, so far to drywall it. They'd hang cabinets. They would put ceramic tile in the showers, but they would leave out the corners because that's where it stresses and that's where it cracks. I mean, it was, it was really cool to see. And then you get to the site and shit, you could stand up 200 rooms in two or three days. Yep. And, and it's, it, they're all Tyvek. They lock them all together. They've got a couple specialized tools. So it was awesome to see, but on the coordination side, on the pre-con side where I live, trying to get, it was a different architect. So I'm not crapping on the same one this time, but trying to get <laughs> the architect at the time to, to kind of erase the way he knew of doing things. And, and, and like you just said, we just got to think of these things a little bit different now, instead of, you know, these long linear planes, we've got, you know, 12 foot boxes. And we got to yeah. connect them all together. And it was, it was challenging to say the least to, to do that. But I think that's, that's probably normal. That's one. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the challenges. One of the interesting things that I got to see um, a lot of the, the companies I've worked with in modular are, are like, they started from scratch. Right. So I was in there day one. I was part of their system. It was, it was wonderful experience. Um, but I always ask like, how do you, you know, what's the inspection like, right. Cause oh, the yeah. typical job has, you know, you have all these different inspections that have to be coordinated and done and documented. And, you know, what if you're building a project, like the one that comes to mind all the time is they built a hotel, large hotel in New York. The, the modules were actually built in Poland by a very well-known company. And I always ask like, how, tell me how that was 
more cost effective than building them here, putting them on a ship, driving them over, hoping that they, you know, something doesn't happen to ship or whatever the case they're exposed to salt water now. Like, um, and if you look at a lot of these projects, there's all these different studies that shows it was cheaper to do it this way. It's cheaper to build in Chicago and ship this container over to somewhere in California than it is to actually build in California. And it has to do with labor costs and all that. But the one question I always asked was, how do you get around the inspections? And how will the industry adapt to that when I'm building something that's, you know, a thousand miles away from the actual site where the coating's different? And I've always pushed this idea of um, the immersive experience, right? Can you put an inspector who works for that city or that county inside of a a virtual environment like a you know a 3D scan or even 360 images where they put on a, a headset and they look around they count the number of screws or they count the spacing or the dimensions or um, is the you know the the ADA compliance is there do you have the handrails at the right level like all those things can be done virtually you don't have to put somebody there the question is will the you know the county the inspectors be willing to adopt that. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think it's a really interesting topic to talk about in the construction industry because that's where we're getting to, right? I mean, a lot of there's a lot of companies now that have invested in, uh, you know, the, the 3D uh, stud printers, right? There's a, a, a couple of different brands out there, um, and they build these walls. Sometimes they have, um, depending on the market you're in, if you know, if it's a very um, uh, unionized market, you might be not be able to do a lot of work with the wall. If you're outside of a unionized market, you might be able to put in some of the MEP and electrical. Um, so th is there an inspection process that has to happen there um, before I ship those wall panels to a job site? Um, I think it's fascinating. I think it's, I think the movement of the industry is awesome with what they're doing in that prefabrication realm. Absolutely. And, and when I was working with those guys back in the day, um, we would actually fly a local inspector to, uh, I think they were building them in Minnesota at the time, but for the same thing. And, and he would take a look at some because the other thing we did or that, that champion was doing was they would, they would inspect them locally wherever the plant was and local inspectors would come in and, and, you know, all of our codes are pretty much the same, but there's also nuances from state to state. So the local would inspect it and they basically would shrink wrap the door shut and they'd deliver this thing on site. And we would have to tell the local inspector in Michigan, sorry, dude, you can't go in there. It's already inspected. It's got a green tag from the, from the place of fabrication. You can inspect the corridors, you know, and the connection yeah. points and where everything snaps together, but you don't cross that door. <laughs> and you can probably imagine how easy of a conversation that was to have, you know, you come into a small town or to, you know, suburban Michigan, even in Detroit. And these inspectors are like, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> this is, this is my domain, man. And yeah. like, Nope. You don't walk through that door. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I can only imagine that's, that's, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I, I hope, I hope, and I, and I think it will, we'll get to a point, especially as some of the boomers kind of move into retirement and some of our, you know, younger gens start to move into those roles and they, they can more easily understand and see the value of, of that immersive experience that you can have. And uh, um, I think, it'll, I think it'll be fun. It'll be really fun. Yeah. So on that, like in doing it immersive or virtual. So there's a couple of things that I like have a, a hard time wrapping my head around. One is prove it. Right. So like you can, fudge the virtual stuff and what's actually there and when we're dealing with life and you know life safety everything right which is a building fire code everything like that there is a big difference in seeing it with your own eyes and you know a lot of those guys and inspectors have um intuition right they've been doing this long enough to where they know what they're looking at they know what meets code what doesn't same with a lot of these things to where you're not going to have that same experience, you know, even with the high resolution cameras that we have. So I, I'm of a mind, you know, and a company could fake it if they truly wanted to Yeah, a file. That's not true. They could do real renderings. Like I have a, a big problem dealing with life safety, you know, in a building if that thing catches on fire. Now who's at fault, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah. the speeder, you know, at fault, right. For providing a shit image, 
you know, like, who's it coming back to? Right. Is the engineer signing off on it, you know, like I'm pulled into that mix. So I have a real hard, like, problem when you deal with life safety to do it in a virtual for real world shit where somebody is going to be trapped in that building when it catches on fire like i have a real hard time with that yeah i think it i think you just have to uh, not every situation might be good for that or we're at a time right now maybe it's not maybe it's not time to implement that for certain applications right um i think it's going to be selective right now and until maybe the technology becomes more immersive or more in I mean, depth, like, this but is you'll my, always, this you'll is always lose that, that touch feel. You're going right? to sign off on it, right? Yeah. Like, you're going to sign your name that if this shit doesn't provide the right data, information, whatever, that you're responsible for it. This is where like in construction, especially the engineer, the architect, they sign their name no matter what happens, like you're going to court if something gets screwed up, yeah. period. And yeah. that GC, like yep. GC and then the architect. It's not the firm. I mean, the firm's involved because they did it, but whoever signed off on that document, that inspector signed off on it. It's not the city, it's that inspector. So this is the big thing that's a very different deal in construction where you have people that actually sign off on shit. You don't have that in automobiles. Nobody yeah. signs off on an automobile. You print a million of them. If it kills whoever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yep. Nobody yep. is actually responsible for it. So this is the biggest difference in construction. And this is where I'm going to have a, a big pushback on it is because somebody actually has to sign their name on it, you know? And like, you're going to do that? You, like, this is my big thing for contracts and everything else we talk about. Like, yeah. The people that have real responsibility for life safety, yep. you know? Building fires are, are no joke. That's why Chicago rewrote their electric code. Same with New York. Like, this is a big deal. And you saw them years ago with shit construction in Dubai, mm -hmm. where people are trapped because they use shit material. You know, people don't sign off on it. And this is a, this is a big deal. Like, when you start talking about inspections and all this stuff, and we all have our beef with inspectors, but at the end of the day, they have a very important job to serve, you know, as do we all within the industry when it comes to life safety stuff. And this oh, yeah. is why the U.S. has very, very low casualties, <laughs> you want to call that loss of life, within yeah. buildings because our codes are the best in the world. We are the gold standard when it comes to life safety stuff. So that, that is my biggest pushback on this, the virtual reality stuff for inspections. It, you know, are you as the company going to sign off on them? Like, are you going to certify that no one will die out of this because, you know, it's right? And that you're not, I mean, like no one's going to do that. No one's going to take that liability. And that's where I have a real, like, you need a person there to sign off on it, to move forward. Hey, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Right. I think it's, it's going to be some time. Everyone's not going to be in, in full agreement to that. Um, I do think they're, you know, not talking so much about new construction, but talking about existing buildings and infrastructure that's had these recent failures, you know, the condo in Miami, the bridge in Pennsylvania, um, those had lack of inspection, right? So when I think about those situations, not so much the virtual side, but what if we integrated the new technology we have today? It can help us see things that the naked eye cannot. You know, I always tell people, you know, scanners can't shoot through water. They can't detect things really underground, but you will get some weird returns if there's some variable in the material, maybe there's moisture in there, you'll get something weird and that may catch the attention of your eye um, or even like integrating thermal. So I think it's a great point. I'm, I'm glad to, to, to see kind of your strong, strong stance on it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, you know, it's good to hear from, from both sides of, of the industry. And obviously, you know, you, uh, being in it day in, day out and seeing those things, I can totally understand why you're, you know, not, I don't want to say in a bad way that way, but why you are the way you are with it. Right. I mean, I, I literally have to sign off on stuff. Like yeah. my name and seal is on those drawings forever. Yeah. Forever. Yeah, that's. That's the nature of our industry, right? It's it's risk. It's risky as hell. Everything oh, we yeah. do, so it's it's always a matter of of trying to balance that risk with the potential reward of whatever the situation is. But 
Um, I, I would, I would tend to agree with you, Dylan, on that one. You know, I, the, the worst thing I could ever imagine happening is a building that I built, you know, having some catastrophic failure and not that, not that I necessarily put all my faith in our local inspection teams. Um, cause I don't, cause I've seen a lot of them that, that are there. They're there because they can't do what we do. Yeah, um, check. You know, Third but, <laughs> but checks and balances are good. Getting more yeah. eyes on it, you know, is just a good thing. And it, it keeps things moving, keeps things standing. So hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, there are times and places, right? Like for existing structures, like you're talking about bridges, especially like we don't have enough people budget isn't allocated for them. So in like those cases, right. Something is better than nothing. And yeah. I am all for that. Right. But then it's like, okay, what are you going to do? If you do have an inspection, you, you got money to put, to fix it. No. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I mean, that's part, that's the other side of this, right? Why yeah. inspect something if you're not going to do anything now, you know, now you're liable. This is yep. the other side of that equation. If you know you're liable, if you don't know you're not liable. So like, this is how these conversations go for everyone else <laughs> has to deal with. That must be how the DOT gets around all the pothole issues you report. Oh, we didn't know about it. So that's we're right. Liable. That's <laughs> exactly right. Tires, so that, that is how yeah, you guys in Michigan would know, especially your guys roads are terrible. Absolute worst in the nation. <laughs> yeah. That's how those conversations go. I mean, and I didn't mean to turn it into this, but it, it's so, so much risk reward to, to Matt's piece on it that, you know, like it's it, who's going to take responsibility at the end of the day is a really big question. And who's going to yeah. sign at the, the bottom of the line. Yep. If you don't have that answer. <laughs> I check. The, well, I, uh, I think it's a good check and balance with, with what, what I brought up initially, right? Like with, with people being afraid of bringing in tech, right? There's gotta yeah. be that, that blend, that healthy medium where, we have the technology. We also have the hands-on, the eyes-on. You know, there's a there's a, a realm where we all exist and, and coexist in a really beneficial way together. And I think we're still, as an industry, figuring out where exactly that sits. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. what we've been talking about for years now on this show is that where that piece is. You know, where where does the technology sit? Where do people need to be? How are we going to bring it all together, make people comfortable with it, you know, make sure that our insurance carriers will support us in our decisions. Uh, and we still have, you know, liability insurance at the end of the day to do the things that we do, which is a big deal. Um, you know, and all those pieces need to need to fit together in a lot of ways. Um, with that, we're pumping <laughs> up on time. Brent, where can they find you and any closing uh, remarks you want to make yeah so um you guys can uh shoot me an email brent.fonikowski at vtsscans.com uh linkedin i'm on there pretty active um visit our website vtscans.com you can find our number in there um yeah i really enjoyed this this show with you guys appreciate you having me on and and the vts team on and uh, great chats. Love, love the engagement. Um, love the passion. You know, it's great. It's great to, it's great to get into it, you know? Um, so fully appreciate that. Thank you guys for, for having me on. So. Oh, absolutely, man. I appreciate you coming on. And, and frankly, uh, I think this is a conversation that could keep going. There's a lot of aspects that we didn't even touch on. Um, we are up against time, but, uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime and, and maybe after I run the dusty robot around, we can, we can have you back on and do a little recap. That would be awesome. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can figure out a spot visit too in there sometime so you can kind of see it in person. I, I might go. know, a, I, know, I might know a name or two that I can call and, and set that up. So awesome. Brent, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time to let us know more about scanning the technologies behind it, you know, what people can do, the laser projection stuff. Like I haven't even seen that. I've seen single point stuff, but not the bigger projection pieces. So that's really cool. And guys, you should check that out to help with layouts. Again, you're going to need somebody to help run you through it on whether you're doing laser scanning, point clouds, uh, the projection stuff, you know, have a team, BTS, I'm sure can assist in doing all that or find your local guy or whatever that might be for your projects to, to get them all set up, scanned. If you're going to go that way, uh, if you're going to use spot on projects 
or whatever other technologies you might be using to help really increase productivity for your guys. You know that we're a fan of technology. Obviously, I have a software company to help automate processes. You know, Matt's using technology on his projects. Like we're we're total fans of using it in ways that help boost your productivity so your people can do what they do best and not those uh, kind of tedious, laborious tasks. But with that, Brent, again, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you being here, sharing with the industry this these valuable insights of what we can do, how we can get better, and uh, really just bringing it all together, having these conversations that everybody has behind closed doors. Uh, we're just having them out in the open and for the public to listen in on. So guys, thank you so much for listening. And that is going to be this episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. Until next time.